0: Hey, good afternoon, friends. Happy Thursday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. You can reach us here this afternoon, 403-974-8255. I posed a question some weeks ago in the aftermath of the October 7th attacks uh, on Israel uh, carried out by Hamas. And the fact that there were those willing to excuse or defend or maybe even celebrate those attacks. You know, despite everything we knew and have continued to learn about just how horrific they were. And the question was, if you were okay with that, if you were prepared to defend that, what could Hamas ever do that you could possibly object to? A sign today of how things could potentially escalate, despite the military setbacks Hamas is suffering, which we'll get to in a second, uh, word out of Europe of some disrupted plots by Hamas. So far, four people have been arrested in Germany and the Netherlands on suspicion of being part of a cross-border Hamas terror plot. The German prosecutor said aimed to target Jewish institutions in Europe. Three others were arrested in Denmark on apparently related terrorism offenses. While police in Copenhagen were more circumspect about the details, the prime minister said the threat was, quote, as serious as it gets. Uh, Danish police said their investigation revealed a network of people have been preparing a terror attack which ran across international borders. And look, let's not dupe ourselves into thinking that we're somehow immune from this either, uh, despite the fact that, that Hamas seems to have defenders, allies uh, in North American and European countries. Uh, that's clearly not stopping them from these kinds of plots. So something to keep an eye on and something to be on guard about. And if nothing else, it's revealing. The idea that Hamas is just some kind of Palestinian resistance group. I think, you know, this helps put that to, to light. Now, meanwhile, as mentioned, uh, the conflict does continue in Gaza. There is, as we've talked about this week, increasing international pressure on Israel to pull back or to agree to some kind of a ceasefire. Canada voted in favor of this ceasefire resolution uh, in the United Nations General Assembly the other day. That's not gone over well with many in this country. Although I suppose you could say it has with some. Uh, Even the U.S., the Biden administration, um, a little more critical as of late uh, in terms of Israel's actions. Uh, But Israel is pressing ahead, trying to achieve their military objectives, uh, to uproot Hamas from Gaza, to defeat Hamas, remove their threat as a military organization. And in that, they appear to be succeeding. Israel has made some tremendous strides in dismantling Hamas infrastructure, uh, taking out Hamas fighters and leadership, Uh, now getting to work on the extensive tunnel network that Hamas has below Gaza. So yes, there's international political pressure, but in terms of the, the military conflict itself, it seems pretty clear that Israel is winning. That's certainly the observation of our next guest, Colonel Richard Kemp. Is a retired British colonel, former commander of British forces in Afghanistan. He's been in Israel reporting uh, on the conflict. Had a great write-up this week uh, in the uh, UK Telegraph, telegraph.co.uk. And read much more at his website, richard-kemp.com. And he joins us on the line here this afternoon. Colonel Kemp, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
1: It's a pleasure to join you.
0: Uh, So as mentioned, there's there's a lot of international pressure, it seems, uh, for Israel to agree to some sort of a ceasefire. But in the meantime, uh, to what extent are are they making some progress?
1: Well, I think the IDF is making very strong progress. They've advanced significant distances inside the Gaza Strip. Um, They have killed a large number of terrorists, seized a lot of terrorist equipment. And they've done so, I think, much quicker than they expected to, and also, critically, they've sustained fewer casualties themselves than they expected to do. All of those things are hallmarks of a, a, a well planned and well run military operation. And only today, um, we saw uh, there was a, a, an IDF attack on terrorists in the vicinity of a hospital in the, uh, the Gaza Strip called the Kamal Adwan Hospital, uh, in which they killed. A uh, number of terrorists, and about seventy, I think more than seventy terrorists, came out with their hands up, handed over their weapons, and have been taken prisoner.
0: This kind of urban combat is is challenging. At, you know, the best of times. Uh, there's a lot of scrutiny here. There's a lot of pressure on Israel to to be very careful in how they proceed, and, and conversely, they're they're facing a. Uh, an entity in Hamas that has no qualms about hiding within a civilian population, basing their operations uh, among civilians. What what kind of challenges does that pose for the IDF?
1: Well, urban warfare is probably the most difficult and demanding um, and toughest form of warfare that you can fight in. Um, it, you know what it means is particularly in this situation, the terrorists have had plenty of time to repair ambushes, booby traps, sniper positions in. Uh, constricted areas which which kind of funnel the idea of sometimes into certain areas making them more vulnerable and um on top of all that you have a a massive tunnel infrastructure underneath the gaza strip which is estimated to be about 300 miles in length Mm -hmm. uh, a network of tunnels um which is which is bigger than the for example the london underground Mm -hmm. um so that adds complexity these are well constructed tunnels they've got concrete floors concrete walls they've got uh concrete ceilings they've got uh, air conditioning electric power lighting um i've been into these tunnels and uh, that they you know they can be extremely strong defensive positions so hamas commanders can hide in them they can move fighters around from place to place emerging at unexpected locations behind the troops sometimes they can store weapons move weapons around and they're very difficult to deal with, uh, so that's that's a kind of another challenge on top of the the normal layer of um, urban uh, urban operations. And the IDF have been, in some cases, entering these tunnels uh, if they need to, for example, check for hostages being held there, or they need to get maybe get to senior commanders inside, gain intelligence. Otherwise, they will not enter them, and they'll just destroy them. And they've destroyed hundreds of these tunnels already inside the Gaza Strip.
0: How different would it be if Israel had gone more slowly? And, and there was certainly pressure on them to do so. You know, the idea of uh, a softer response prolonging all of this, uh, could, could that have been disastrous?
1: Well, I think so. The, 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 the Americans um, tried to persuade the Israelis not to go in with armored division, but instead to to use special forces operations In other words, sort of small numbers of troops carrying out uh, precise raids, um, which the Americans said this was what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq. But unfortunately, that didn't work there. And it's not going to work in Gaza. And the IDF discarded that advice and went in in significant force. We're now seeing the results of that. Of course, we've seen a fair few IDF casualties. I think the figure now is about 115, something like that killed. It obviously changes from time to time. And the estimates uh, estimates are about seven to eight thousand terrorists killed as well. Um, and and I think you know I think I mentioned before the surrendering of Hamas terrorists to the IDF. This is not the first time that the one I mentioned in the hospital near the hospital. This has been happening for several days now. And I think one thing it does show it shows the demoralisation of Hamas. It shows that they kind of at least many members of Hamas know they're beaten. And and the last thing we need now is for people saying, Go slowly, have a ceasefire. Um, you know, don't don't keep advancing as you are, because what that does, that gives hope to Hamas. They know the only way they can avoid their destruction is if Israel stops attacking. And and it, it basically the last thing we need is to give hope to Hamas. Hamas should be devoid of all hope, and that would shorten the war if Hamas terrorists begin to surrender in even larger numbers. That reduces the bloodshed and shortens the war and reduces the number of civilian casualties killed as well
0: so what's your sense of how Israel would be defining success here? How will Israel know when they've they've achieved these goals or, or when they've they've gone as far as they need to go
1: Well, I think they you know that basically it's going to be uh, a decision taken at the top level of the military really to when they when they determine that um, Hamas has stopped fighting while Hamas continues to fight, even in relatively small numbers. Um, and there's still quite a few of them left and quite a lot still fighting. Um, but while they continue to fight, the war is not over. And I think the, 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 the either surrender or the killing or even the escaping of Hamas out of the Gaza Strip, I think, you know, a, a complete, um, a situation like that is is basically the end of the high intensity conflict. Now, there will be terrorists who melt into the civilian population as they op- they're hiding in among the civilian population anyway. There will be terrorists who do that and and some in some cases take their weapons with them and maybe carry out an opportunity attack. But I think you know the the the, the really important thing is that the, the the vast majority of the fighting is concluded and that will be the end of this stage of the conflict is not the end of the conflict altogether, but it's the end of this point.
0: Early on, there was the concern that this would spill beyond just Gaza, the, the possibility of a regional conflict or even a, you know, a front on, on Israel's North uh, with Hezbollah. But it seems like that's been quiet. Does, does that to you speak to maybe the, the success of Israel's approach or what do we to make of that?
1: Well, I think, um, <clears throat> I think Hezbollah has been, in the north, in Lebanon, which, which is like Hamas and Islamic Jihad, This is another violent Israel- Iranian proxy terrorist group. And I think they've been probably taken aback by the ferocity of the Israeli assault, which in a way is acting as a deterrent against them. I don't say they're permanently deterred. We have seen some quite intensive activity from um, from Hezbollah in the north firing quite a large number of rockets and anti-tank missiles at Israelis Israeli troops. And some have been killed. So I think, you know, that, that's not it's not been entirely quiet. Uh, and I think, you know, the, it, it's very much something that's unknown whether Hezbollah will at some point join in the fight. It doesn't look like they will now. But nevertheless, they've got to be dealt with at some point because they're effectively a gun at Israel's head. But it is, in a way, a regional conflict because we've seen, OK, pretty limited. We've seen rocket fire from uh, Syria by, yeah. again, his, uh, Iran's proxies. We've seen um, violence in the West Bank, Judea and Samaria. Again, some of them at least, Iran's proxies, including Hamas there. We've seen uh, rockets and ballistic missiles launched from Yemen by the Houthis, again, Iran's proxies, um, and also attacks on international shipping there, which we, all of which flow from this conflict in Gaza. So it's it is a regional conflict. It's, it's. I think, to a large extent controlled at the moment. But all of these different theatres that I've mentioned, they all have to be dealt with. I would suggest that it's the United States that should be dealing with the Houthis in Yemen because they're disrupting one of the world's most important uh, shipping arteries. And that has a pretty significant effect on the global economy and needs to be dealt with. Uh, there's no sign that the Americans are going to do it yet, but they certainly need to do so.
0: We'll see it unfolds in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, We mentioned your piece. It's up at telegraph.co.uk and uh, much more at richard-kemp.com. Colonel Kemp, appreciate it. Uh, As always, thanks so much for making some time for us here. My pleasure. Welcome back. Thanks for being with us here on a Thursday afternoon. Much more still to get to, including your phone calls, of course, at 403-974-8255. Let's turn our attention to the topic of birth tourism. And maybe not surprisingly, after a couple of years of uh, travel restrictions, we're seeing those numbers go up again. So basically, birth tourism, it's kind of implied in the name. It's the act of traveling to another country for the purpose of giving birth. And in this case, that being Canada. Individuals traveling from abroad to Canada so that their babies can be born here. And that has citizenship implications, and and so there's a reason why all of this is is happening. So to what extent should we be concerned about it? Both in terms of those citizenship implications, but also just even in terms of demand on the healthcare system. You know, doctors uh, who have a lot to do as it is... Um, You know, helping Canadian women give birth and responding to other needs to to now deal with all of these uh, other cases. Because, look, complications can arise too, and that can also mean uh, strain on the healthcare system. Uh, So as mentioned, after those couple of years of pandemic travel restrictions, travel has normalized, and we're seeing those birth tourism numbers rise once again. Uh, So what do we need to do about it? Is the government taking a serious enough approach to this? What kind of changes would allow us to to more effectively address this? What are other countries doing, for example? Uh, there's an interesting piece uh, up at uh, Policy Options, uh, part of the uh, Institute or the R-R-P-P, rather dot org. Uh, you can find it there. Joining us uh, to talk more about it is uh, the author of this piece, Andrew Griffiths, is a, a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, also with the Environics Institute. author through the book because it's 2015, implementing diversity and inclusion. Uh, Andrew, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Rob.
0: Uh, so as mentioned, is you, you mentioned in your piece rather the you know the the travel numbers and birth tourism numbers that we saw before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and now after. Uh, the pandemic really tell an interesting story. What stands out to you?
2: Well, I I guess what stood out for me is that I almost expected this to be like a natural experiment because when I first started publishing on birth tourism, there were a number of people who said the methodology is flawed. You're extrapolating too much in terms of how many of those people who are giving birth here are actually birth tourists versus international students and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But what the pandemic allowed me to show was actually that a large percentage, probably about 50% of those people giving birth can were likely birth tourists because they were most affected by the shutting down of travel and visa restrictions. Uh, so that's the main story, is that the methodology in terms of trying to get a better sense of how many people are coming to Canada for the purpose of giving birth um, is now a bit more solidly established than it was before. And again, sort of as one would expect as travel restrictions and visas are issued, uh, the numbers start to climb up again.
0: Right, and so this helps give a more complete picture of what's going on because otherwise, because we don't have, as you point out in your piece, we don't have a a specific code for this, that it can be difficult to measure through our our normal uh, healthcare metrics.
2: That's correct, And, and, and like everything, we always want perfect data and that's usually hard to get, but I think we found a reasonably good proxy uh, for what is the number of birth tourists. And it's certainly much better than we had in 2012 when the previous government actually tried to uh, implement some measures against birth tourism.
0: So why is Canada such an attractive destination for this?
2: Well, I think it's a, it's a combination of factors. Um, <clears throat> probably in some cases it's better health care. Um, but I think it's obviously a case where the ability to obtain citizenship for your child is a major advantage. And so the studies that I've seen that more qualitative ones where they actually try and get a sense from the people who are uh, using, who, who are birth tourists, is that the attraction of Canadian citizenship is a major drawing card, just as it is in the United States, that the attraction of getting a U.S. citizen was a major drawing card for a birth tourist in the U.S.
0: And I guess it's interesting, too, and maybe worth pointing out, that we're not typically talking about, you know, like, Asylum seekers or refugees, like typically, these are are people with means uh, who are able to arrange travel here, who don't intend to stay here. What about that side of it?
2: Well, I think that's a a really important point um, because when I started publishing on on this kind of thing, some people said, "Well, these are you know you know poor people or you know people who are struggling and everything like that." But no, this is this is a fairly wealthier class of people who have enough money to A. travel um, and stay in Canada for, for a month or so uh, B. usually can stay and serve birth hostels or birth hotels and have money for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not really the asylum claimants that we're dealing with here or refugees or international students. We're dealing with people who actually have means, um, and therefore it almost becomes more of a class issue, if, if I can put it that way, than an immigration issue.
0: What is the concern? I mean, there was there the concern about, you know, the strain on the health care system and, and diverting resources to deal with this, or, or sort of that, that loophole when it comes to citizenship. Like, what, what is the concern?
2: I think there are concerns on on a number of levels. I think most fundamentally, I think the concern is about the meaning of citizenship and and the sense that by going through birth tourism there's people are sort of exploiting a loophole in in the system and right. they're sort of doing, taking a shortcut to becoming a citizen having their children become a citizen and then eventually that helps them become citizens i think the impact on health care is real at the hospital or regional level yeah. but you know given the size of healthcare care budgets you know it's it's almost a rounding error it's, it's you know every rounding error helps or h- harms, of course, but you know it's it's a very small percentage of healthcare po- costs. But we have seen studies where some of the birth who've come have had complications, and that has of course increased the cost of delivery. It's not a standard delivery at what, ten thousand dollars; it becomes you know a couple of hundred thousand dollars. And there have been some issues where people have not paid those extra charges, so it does affect. The hospitals at the local level and probably the regional health authorities, but in the broader scheme of things, it's probably relatively small. It doesn't mean we shouldn't stop it, but it, it's you know important to keep that perspective.
0: Well, can we? And that's the question, right? I mean, are, are there changes we could make to, to, to the Citizenship Act or other legislation that, that we could deal with this?
2: Well, the cleanest solution is simply to make an amendment to the Citizenship Act that basically says that, you know, one or more of the parents have to be Canadian, you know, that's, uh, that's largely the Australian approach. Um, and uh, that if you're just on a tourist visa, your child is not entitled to Canadian citizenship. Uh, so that's the cleanest approach. There are possibilities sort of Serbia you trying know, try to restrict visas in those cases. That's the approach the Americans have, have tried, but it's too early to say where that's been working. So I think just the cleanest one is just to sort of make a change to the Citizenship Act um, and to make it clear in terms of what's, what's allowed and what's not. And that's the Australian approach, and it seems to have worked well.
0: Yeah, and I, I do wonder, I mean, would that be vulnerable to a charter challenge? That would make for an interesting case, I, I suppose. But uh, do, you, do you think that, so that that could stand?
2: Well, you know, you know, whatever you make a legislative change, you're always exposed to possible charter uh, challenges and, and the like and legal challenges. Um, I've never seen any detailed analysis as you couldn't do this mm-hmm. um, because in, in the essence we have any number of restrictions on citizenship, um, whether it be length of residency, whether it be language requirements, whether it be uh, knowledge requirements. Um, so I don't think this would be one that would not pass a, a charter challenge, but I'm, I'm not a lawyer and I know there'll be some innovative lawyers who would probably uh, launch that. But I think I think it's relatively sound.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I guess we'll see how it plays out. first step is, is government deciding to get serious. So we'll see if that happens. Uh, in the meantime, as mentioned, your latest uh, policy options, that's policyoptions.irpp.org. Andrew, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this.
2: Well, thanks very much for having me. Have a good
0: day. You too. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, author uh, Andrew Griffin uh, Griffith. He is a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute and the Environics Institute and uh, his piece for policy options, the Institute for Research on Public Policy. I think it's time for government to get serious about this. There, there's an obvious path forward here. And I mean, yeah, it, it just, it, there's just common sense that comes into play here. Like clearly, you know, women that are nine months pregnant should not be traveling. You know, if for some reason you're late in your pregnancy and you, you go on a vacation to the U.S., okay, you know, you need to have your child. You're going to return home. That, that's a Canadian baby, right? Like, it just – it doesn't make any sense that it would be otherwise. But sort of the way we approach it is, okay, you were born on Canadian soil. I guess you're a Canadian now. And so that does seem like a, a loophole or a back door to citizenship because otherwise, you know, there's a process that the people have to follow. So if you're the parent of a Canadian citizen, eventually that Canadian citizen can bring you to Canada. And so, yeah, it, it is uh, a long game they're playing here, but it's, it's a backdoor to citizenship. And it, sh- it should work that way. It's just not fair. So it's not an ideal situation for a number of reasons to have very pregnant women traveling, and in this case, generally overseas. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the, the strain that puts on the healthcare system. And, and a number of doctors have spoken out about this, right? And so they're concerned about this too, that their ability to provide proper care to women who are here in Canada. You, you can't turn women away from a hospital. A woman comes into a hospital in labor, you got to deal with the situation. How can it be otherwise? Welcome back. A little more than halfway there. A final hour here on a Thursday afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-8255. We'll open things up later in this hour. Some time for your phone calls. A lot that we've already talked about here today. Got a few other things to get to as well. Uh, looking ahead to 2024, what does the new year have in store for Canada's oil and gas sector? Uh, you know, more uh, recently, more short-term challenge. We've definitely seen a bit of a softening in, in commodity prices, at least when it comes to the oil price, but uh, not anywhere near the price crash we've dealt with in recent years. So there's there's still some optimism that that prices will sustain a a lot of activity. I guess there's also maybe some uncertainty about the impact of of policy. You know, we just got the details on the uh, proposed emissions cap for the oil and gas sector, and that's still a little way out, but that could also have an impact. Uh, The latest report from Inserva, formerly the Petroleum Services Association of Canada, uh, is forecasting a positive uh, outlook for 2024 for the Canadian oil and gas sector. Uh, the demand is trending up for the new year and that uh, Canadian producers are, are poised to to navigate uh, all of these different kinds of challenges. So joining us uh, for more on the uh, latest report, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, Gurpreet Lale, who is CEO at Enserva. Gurpreet, so great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Uh, so as mentioned, I mean, it's, it's a bullish report for the most part for, for 2024, as we uh, look at what the next uh, 12 months might have in store. First of all, what, what is the potential impact of, of sagging prices or how much of an impact do we think that'll have?
3: I mean, if you look at the prices, just in, even in the past year, I mean, it's been an ebb and flow. You know, it's scary when you see a rapid increase or a rapid decrease. But seeing uh, nominal changes throughout throughout the year is actually it's it's normal, and it's way better for us to have gradual growth in pricing yeah. rather than exponential.
0: Yeah, I know here in Alberta, I mean, there's it can be a double-edged sword, and we look at, you know, say $100 a barrel, and that can... Cause some problems in addition to to addressing some revenue uh, challenges, but yeah, I mean, if absolutely. we just have sort of that that more steady, you know, you want that Goldilocks zone where it's it's high enough that it's stimulating activity, but not so high that it's punishing consumers. So maybe there's some some upside to where we're at right now.
3: No, absolutely. I think there's like the, the sweet spot in industry that we talk about is about seventy to eighty dollars mm-hmm. a barrel, and and you know we're right in there, so we're not too concerned about that right now. I mean, there's other uh, components are that are that are at play that uh, might affect that a little bit more, but right now we we have a pretty optimistic look, outlook for 2024. Yeah,
0: and I mean the good thing is it doesn't seem to be like you know there's there's not really a drop in demand. So there's some weird things going on in the market, or you know Saudi Arabia and OPEC, whatever games they're playing. But the good news is even though prices have dropped a bit recently, there still seems to be steady demand. What what are we expecting for 2024?
3: For, so. Steady demand, but demand isn't, it's not decreasing, right? So, like, globally, demand is growing. And for our industry here in Canada in 2024, we're seeing, um, you know, great optimism that we're going to have more drilling in 2024. We're going to have um, there's going to be more supply and demand, so we're getting employees to meet meet that demand right now. And I think when you look at um, where we're headed in terms of infrastructure, barring any more delays, you know, I think we've got we've got capacity to start exporting more as well.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's that's an important point, too. You know, I mean, I know there have been a little bit of last kind of minute hiccups for the, the uh, Trans Mountain expansion, but, uh, you know, hopefully that's going to come online in 2024 at some point. So that'll make a big difference then.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean if, once you get infrastructure in place and you got our customers are are putting more investment back into industry, you know, before, after COVID, when, when industry was seeing an uptick, there was a lot of, you know, shareholder repayments and share buyback. And you didn't see a lot of investment going back into the energy industry or the supply chain. But we're now seeing, seeing that and in 2024 is actually looking quite promising.
0: Right. And it, it's also looking good for overall production in Canada. Um, so the ability to meet that demand, what are we expecting in terms of overall production?
3: Um, so if you looked at like 2022 I believe it was and we were looking at you know we were holding steady but right now we're thinking there's going to be at least a 20 percent growth in production in Canada for in 2024 um, you know having blueberry first nations when um, that the court decisions came down and opened up permitting again there's a lot of activity that's taking place now in the Montney and you know the industry actually feels like we're back again
4: mm-hmm.
3: despite what you hear in the in the media well yeah um, i think on it's important to count that yeah well i mean when you look at we come i so we were also at uh, cop 28 and it's funny the message that came out but the message that, message that was being delivered are so different so you know i think everybody realizes that oil and gas is here to stay it's going to be part of this energy, new energy mix for a long time to come yet. And quite frankly, Canada is poised to help the rest of the world in meeting their emissions target by supplying clean energy to those markets. We just need to go and do it now.
0: Right. And I know, the, you know I mean, there's some concern about how ambitious some of these targets might be or how or ambitious federal policy in, in this realm could be. But I think at the same time, there, there are some real opportunities here. And I think industry recognizes you know where there are those opportunities so as as we move toward this ch- transition or the demand for low emission energy how well poised I- is the canadian industry i think canada
3: is at the forefront on on a lot of us like when we were we were talking about geothermal nuclear you know technologies like ccus we're looking into hydrogen i mean they're all new forms of energy and innovation that's going to help us into the future so I think we're quite poised for it. Mm -hmm. I think where things get lost is when people think you're going to get rid of oil and gas and you're going to replace it with something else. That's not the case. It's going to be an and, and oil and gas will be part of that mix for many decades to come.
0: Well, yeah, and that's the hope. I think, you know, looking further ahead, once we get, um, you know, the LNG Canada project up and running, you know, our ability to export LNG, and, and that's going to create a lot of opportunity, but also the ability to, you know, help reduce uh, emissions from coal and, and have that environmental upside. So, you know, looking further out, we still see those opportunities down the road. Oh,
3: absolutely. I mean, we even see opportunities with uh, with our Canadian economy actually helping other countries. So if you look at countries like India, they announced, what, I think a month ago, that they were investing in more mines to uh, and into coal, and because they don't have another way of weaning off of emissions in in their country, and they want to. Right. So if someone's asking us, we should absolutely be the ones providing help to them instead of, you know, you look at countries like Russia, and they're buying, they're buying energy from Russia instead at a discounted price. And and it should be Canada.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Much more on all of this, inserva.ca. Gurpreet, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate the overview. Thanks so much, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, That is Gurpreet Lale, CEO at Inserva, formerly the Petroleum Services Association of Canada. So uh, their latest report, the State of the Industry Report, uh, forecasting good things in 2024. Uh, So part of it, too, is just, you know, with the inflation receding, uh, that that's going to make a big difference. They're predicting capital investment will continue to rise, uh, 14.8% uh, in 2023 relative to 2022, which is, is higher than had been expected, and they're uh, forecasting more of this into the new year. Uh, Canadian oil sands production uh, for this year expected to reach 3.7 million barrels per day and expecting more of that in 2024. So more investment, more production, That's all good. Demand trending up in 2024, so that's not going away. Uh, But also, as they point out, there is a growing demand for low emission energy. And they argue Canada's well positioned to take advantage of that. Speaking of the easing of restrictions, I mean, it's been, uh, I guess, a a return to, to normalcy for the travel industry, at least in terms of travel volumes. But it's still been a challenging recovery. Uh, from the pandemic, which took a, a, a real toll on the airline industry. So even though people are traveling once again and airports are busy, uh, you know, it's, it's still tenuous times for the airline industry. And a question, I guess, of what kind of further upheaval awaits us. So Porter Airlines has uh, just announced a new partnership deal with Alaska Airlines and that comes a couple of weeks after they announced a separate partnership with Air Transit, the CEO of Porter Airlines says the reality is that the market here is too small to keep all of these smaller airlines afloat for two more years. His expectation is at least one of them will be gone over that time frame so you're, you know you 're competing for a fixed pool of pilots that 's part of the challenge, and maybe there 's only so much demand to go around. Now, competitors don't necessarily see it that way. Flair Airlines says it's increasing its fleet. Lynx Air says it's increasing its fleet. Canada Jetlines, another upstart, says they're going to have 15 aircraft uh, in the next uh, 13 months. They just have three right now. So the other smaller, ultra low cost carriers uh, say they only plan on growing, not going anywhere. We did, though, lose one entry in the market. And I mean, technically it was part of WestJet, but Swoop Airlines uh, recently went under. So, I mean, that, I think that speaks to some of that uh, uncertainty, I guess. So turning us to talk more about these challenges and uh, what sort of upheaval we can expect maybe in the months and years ahead. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon, uh, John Graddick, former Air Canada executive, currently a faculty lecturer, uh, of the academic programs, also academic programs coordinator uh, with the Supply Networks program, McGill University. John, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
4: Uh- My pleasure to be back with you, Rob.
0: Uh, First of all, in terms of uh, Porter and these deals or these partnerships they've been announcing, first with Air Transit, now with uh, Alaska Airlines, what do you read into that, first of all?
4: Oh, I think they're trying to entrench themselves as a viable alternative to to Air Canada. Um, I think that uh, they have Air Canada in their sights, um, you know, and they're doing it not by flying their own metal into these locations, but by flying metal that belongs to their you know, their interline partners. So, you know, the, they're doing that with Air Transat to basically get a joint venture with Air Transat to basically allow uh, port passengers to fly on Air Transat to um, the Caribbean, the Florida, uh, and internationally on the North Atlantic. Uh, what they're doing with Alaska is really a commercial um, arrangement, a joint vent- not a joint venture, but a commercial arrangement that allows Porter's passengers to go up and down the Pacific coast mm-hmm. with uh, connections at San Fran and Los Angeles coming off a Porter airplane and then flying on a Alaska Airlines flight. So, yeah, what Porter is doing is really expanding the scope and breadth of the Porter brand by developing these relationships with other carriers
0: right and is that kind of the really the only way to do that like could, could they grow that way on their own or do they need these partnerships
4: well i think that you know you're looking at the fleet type that our friends at porter are using to, to, to grow and they're they're using the Embraer 195 e2 which is a nice airplane um narrow-bodied airplane single aisle two by two seating no middle seat great if you're flying for two or three hours or four hours It's got the range to do, you know, Toronto, L.A. Uh, It can do Calgary, Miami if you really push it. Uh, But Edmonton, not sure. So this is an aircraft that is primarily North American focused. It's really an airplane that Porter is using to kind of establish itself as a premier or a strong Um, you know, premier airline for North America. If you're going to go beyond North America, um, you know, particularly in the the Caribbean, some destinations, Mexico, or even into, you know, Europe, uh, they don't have the airplanes to do it, so they're using Air Canada or they're using Air Transat airplanes to do that.
0: I mean, ultimately, everyone's competing for, for the travel dollar, but, it, you know, we sort of have these two classes in Canada. We've we got the big players, Air Canada and WestJet, and then we've got the smaller, the ultra-low-cost carriers. But does this imply to you that Porter is is inching into that realm of WestJet and Air Canada? Is that really more so their competition now?
4: Yeah, I think so. I think that, you know, initially, they were when they launched themselves, they were basically pricing their product at the Lynx Flair level, you know, maybe a little higher uh, and I think that, you know, they're seeing that's not where you make any money. They don't believe that you don't make, you're don't you not going to make a lot of money flying airplanes across the country at those low fares that Flair and Lynx seem to have. Uh, so, you know, they've made the, the decision that we're going to have to expand our uh, capabilities to, in fact, fly to other destinations through uh, use of other carriers' metal uh, and basically hopefully get a higher fare uh, than we would normally get competing head-to-head with Flair or Lynx.
0: So as noted, I mean Flair uh you know seems ambitious and optimistic. They're they're going to increase its fleet from twenty-one up to twenty six. Lynx, uh same thing. They've got nine. They they say they have plans for seventeen. Now Porter's CEO says, you know, he's not convinced that will all come to fruition. So as mentioned, he, he expects maybe one of these to fall out of the market over the next couple of years. So who's right here? <laughs>
4: I, you know, I, I had the same. I made the same prediction. I believe earlier this fall that you know we we've got no room for all of these carriers in Canada. So if you look at the market like Toronto, Calgary, which is one of the one of the more heavily travel markets in Calgary, you now have seven, count them, Rob, wow. seven carriers, seven carriers operating on that route. If you want competition, that's the key example of where competition is in Canada. Um, and you know you can fly Toronto Calgary for you know two hundred bucks, two hundred twenty bucks. In, in, in January and February March, it's going to cost you six hundred in July and August. But you know the, the prices are pretty pretty reasonable when you talk about high density markets such as those as, as, such as Toronto Calgary. And but that also attracts a lot of these carriers. So each of these carriers is like gunning against themselves mm-hmm. to basically get the share market. And it gets to be a little bit uh, difficult to kind of see how are these low-cost carriers going to survive with all that competition that's out there. And, you know, as much as Mr. DeLuce basically is saying that, you know, he predicts one of those other carriers may go down down the road, may not make it, um, I might be able to say that I have the same concerns about Porter, that, you know, I wouldn't want to take Porter and give Porter a, a, a blank check to basically get through this process. I think Porter... Um, is in that same uh, boat as he's identified with Blair and Lynx and the Canada Jetlines. Um, he may not make it. Uh, because of the competition, so uh, I'd be very, very careful about making those types of statements if I was Mister DeLuce.
0: What about the pilots that all of these airlines need in order to operate? We've seen labor turmoil at, um, at WestJet, potentially uh, with Air Canada. You know, there's there's competition for these pilots, but that's also competition with other countries too. So, how much of a challenge is that right now?
4: Oh, major challenge. I think that you know, that's, if you're if you're a youngster in Canada coming out of uh, coming out of. You know the bush airlines in northern alberta or northern saskatchewan or northern manitoba and you've got 1500 hours flying with those those aircraft uh you're in pretty good shape to get a job um now the, the, the jobs are are are, are 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 well-paid jobs and air canada is negotiating a new contract with our pilots that will increase that pay significantly by the time we get to the end of negotiations so if you're a pilot in canada um, you know, I think they're, the, the skies are pretty rosy for you to get an increase in your salaries. Um, the problem is, is that, you know, easy come, easy go, that the carriers that are hiring all these people may not last. And, I, and like I said, I include Porter in that. So there's a short-term bump in terms of need for pilots, but that may be negated when some
0: of these guys basically uh, start to uh, lose their wings. Mm-hmm. Is any of this going to get the attention of the federal government? I mean, you know, you'd think it would be a hands-off approach when it comes to, you know, sort of letting the markets sort things out. And, you know, some players come and some players go. But, you know, there's a need for competition. If, if people are paying a lot to travel, that, that's going to, you know, get the politicians' attention. Do, do you see any role for the federal government, or might they likely get involved here?
4: I think, they, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure for them to get involved. There's no doubt about it. Um, and once, once carriers start to disappear and then the low fares start to disappear as well, um, the question is, should there be a role for the government in all this? And I think if I look you know, around the world and look at those markets where we have low fares and low-cost low airlines around, the governments have been pretty much hands-off, letting the market dynamics take care of the comings and goings of airlines. And it's cyclical. You know, We've seen this in Canada at least five or six times in my career, in, in, in aviation, we get carriers that show up. We've had Nation Air, we've had Quebec Air, we've had Nord Air, we've had Canada 3000. You know, all of them have tried, tried this process, and they've all disappeared. And so this is just another round of the same type of market economics happening. Guys will get will disappear. The fares will come back up. Somebody will say, Oh, great, the fares are so high. Maybe we'll start another airline.
0: Yeah.
4: And then then they show up and they start doing this thing all over again. So it's a cyclical economic cycle. Uh, I think the the, the the government has seen this cycle many times, and I think the government says we'd rather not play that game. We'd rather keep hands off. We'll certify airplanes, make sure they're safe to fly, but at what price they charge Canadian consumers and the economics of those airlines, uh, I think the government's very wise in keeping hands off and let the, the economics of the marketplace decide who survives and
0: who doesn't. We'll see how it all plays out. John, appreciate your insight. Thanks for making some time for us here.
4: All right, Rob,
0: have a great day. Take care of yourself. You too. Cheers. Uh, there you go. That's uh, John Graddock, uh, former Canada executive, uh, now faculty lecturer at McGill University. So his thoughts on kind of where the industry is at, and it's in a state of flux as, you know, the industry as a whole recovers from the pandemic, but uh, a lot of fierce competition, which maybe from the consumer's perspective is a good thing. Keep in mind, this is all a closed system, right? Like Porter Airlines can partner with Alaska Airlines. That's not like Alaska Airlines can come in and say, "Hey, I'll, we'll run some Calgary to Toronto routes." You can fly from Calgary to Seattle or vice versa, but yeah, we we keep the foreign carriers out when it comes to the domestic routes. That would be an interesting way of getting some competition. That's probably a non-starter. So, you know, we're left to what we have here. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. And you can email me, Rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time.